Hi, I'm Amy Stone, and you're listening to your Midwest Garden Podcast. Hi again, this is Michael Work, the Garden Guy. We're with uh, Scott Sandstrom, whom you happen to know. Scott, do you want to say hello again? Yes, hello again. He didn't even say it the first time. Nope. Anyway, this is your Midwest Garden Podcast. Again, I'm Michael Work, the Garden Guy. Now today we've got we're, we're basically <laughs> we've got the we've got somebody that knows her stuff, and her name is Amy Stone. She is an Ohio State University Extension Agent for Lucas County. However, she uh, is also an editor for a newspaper in the Midwest out here. Uh, for gardening, and it came to my my and Scott's uh, attention by being able to read one of these articles, especially the most recent one, was about um, actually something we talked about a couple of podcasts ago. Um, what, what did we call that one, Scott? Prepping for pests. Well, prepping for pests. Well, you know, they are here. They're here. And Amy Stone is here to basically elaborate a little bit more. Amy, you want to say Hello. Hello. Oh, I like that. That was good. Amy, please do us this favor. First things first, I want you to give a little background of where you came into becoming an Ohio State University Extension agent. So it went back quite a ways. So I was actually at Owens Community College with Chris Foley, my advisor, and there was a one-year grant with Ohio State University that he said, Amy, you'd be perfect for It'd be a great way to make connections in the community and with other organizations um, in the green industry. And I applied and got the job. And almost 29 years later, I'm still here with Ohio State University. Are you going to celebrate 30 and out, or are you going to stick it out all the way to like 70? Oh, it'll be more than 30. It'll be more than 30. I hope so. (laughs) You did an article today. Um, Well, let me backtrack a little bit. Ohio State University is a, what, a land-grant university? It is. I think it's um, a a good way to um, compare or talk about land grants are that they're the front door to that university in whichever state you live in. And so just imagine the resources and the the expertise at that university. As a resident of that state, you have access to that. Now, when you say access, how how do you mean? You mean information that you, being that you're a taxpayer, you can go directly to, let's say, the entomology department at the Ohio State University or the ag department at OSU and find out? Or is it through somebody like yourself? Yeah, usually it's through your local county extension office, but you can work through those channels. And so if somebody has a question or a request that comes into my office that I can't handle locally or maybe need some additional knowledge or expertise, I have those individuals at the university that can help support and answer those types of questions. Okay, go Bucks. What do you think about that, Scott? Go Green. Well, you, now see, there's a there's there's see, is this true that there's a little competition between Michigan State University, i.e. Scott Sandstrom and his children who went there, versus <laughs> uh, Ohio State University and the Buckeyes? So I don't think it's competition at all. In fact, we do a lot of collaborating. Really? So I work with uh, folks up at Michigan State and Purdue University and Penn State. And so we're all in it together, and we just had to get the word out. Perfect. I'm... And, until we talk turf on the football field. That's and a little then, bit different. Then it's, then it's the gloves come out. How's that? 
Well, they don't have any turf at Michigan State, do they? Or no, it... no, it's beautiful turf. That's what they're known for, their turf department. Okay, what about OSU? Is the same thing. Yeah, we See have what a, I mean? We have an awesome turf team, too. So let's compete. What kind is it, do you know? It's... It's green. It's green. Okay. See, Scott is he's he's somebody that's green and white. curious. The green side up for everything. <laughs> All right, you, let's get, get can I, can I ask a question? Please do. Are you asking me or Amy? Amy. Okay. Because I want an Stone, answer. Um, Scott wants to ask you a question. Is it okay? Uh, the extensions. Uh, do most states have these extensions th- throughout the Midwest, or or all states have them? Yeah, so all states have land-grant universities. Some states, like Ohio, actually have two land-grant universities. Okay, so everybody listening in the Midwest, our target audience basically, has access to their their local extension office. Via their extension, right, their extension agent. Now, how difficult is it? Now, Ohio State University, let's say Lucas County, you were wonderful at getting the information out as far as how to contact people, how to, whether it would be via the internet or telephone or one way or the other, somebody will get back with them. Do all of the, the, the counties have extensions? Well, they have to have extensions like this, but do they have access such as what you do to share with everybody that's in their location? Sure. So every county may be a little bit different. Um, there is a national ask an expert, which is part of the national extension system because so many people are going to the internet to get their answers. And mm-hmm. so you can pose those questions and then it's filtered back through to your state or maybe somebody outside of your state, but they're an expert in that subject matter. And so they get those questions. Okay. How, how do they do that? How do they get that information? Just contact the, the extension at the county and they, or that are just online. It's ask an expert. That's you just type in, ask an expert. Right. And it comes up. Wow. All right, now, 100 years ago, 100-plus years ago, these land-grant universities were started because most everybody were urban ag, not urban ag, rural ag. Right. Meaning that um, they had the state university would be providing all of the information for mostly the people that are in agriculture or the farmers at the time. Now that you've got an urban scenario such as what we're doing right now is trying to develop some type of agriculture within the urban environment, has the extension environment changed at all, or is that something that is changing? What What are they doing for people that, let's say an average gardener, are you overwhelmed with something like that? Sure. So it really depends on your location. And so it's a grassroots organization that responds to questions and needs within that county. And so if you're in more of a traditional rural county, I mean, you're going to be dealing probably more one-on-one with traditional farmers But in an urban county, I mean, we deal with homeowners on urban tree issues, in garden issues, landscapes. Uh, But then we also still have the rural components on both the eastern and the western side of the county. You also have an an element that's out there right now, which I don't want to call an elite scenario, but I think it is. It's kind of like an elite armed forces wing of the agriculture department, which is called the Master Gardeners Program that you have. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and how they can share some of the wealth that you give them with the rest of the community? Sure, and I think you were kind of getting to that question, how can one person handle all the questions and concerns that the citizens may have? And and you can't. And so what Extension has done is engaged volunteers 
And so we have people who have an interest in horticulture that we provide them with some additional training. And then in return, they help us spread that information. So these are like deputies. Sort of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, now I remember years ago that to become a master gardener, all you had to do was be to go and introduce yourself to the extension agent and they would go through a program. It usually is about 12 weeks. Now that it's become overwhelmingly popular, and I mean that because people want to become master gardeners, how, what's the process for somebody that would want to become one? How do they do that? Let's say in Lucas County. I don't know what other counties do. Sure. So, I mean, they're a volunteer of Ohio State University, so it's, a, it's an application process. They tell us a little bit about themselves and what their knowledge level is, and not to um, decide, oh, gosh, that person doesn't have a you know, background in, in horticulture, because we have people at all levels. Uh, people have been gardening their whole life, but then some that are maybe just retired and they have a new interest. And so they have this growing passion. And so they are awesome volunteers as well. And so we um, choose people according to their applications. And then we start the program typically in February through April here in Lucas County. And that varies county to county, depending on what happens. And then they do their volunteering, you know, right after class ends all the way through the following fall. Volunteering, what do they have hours, days, weeks that they're supposed to perform? Yeah, so it's a 50-hour commitment is the minimum the first year. And so that could be teaching others in more of a formal setting, going into classrooms with kids. We have a horticulture hotline where people can call or bring samples in um, and we're also, I, today I spent part of my day out at one of the local libraries putting in a vegetable garden. And so that was with a group of Master Gardener volunteers. So it kind of really is what the needs of the community is and how we can increase people's um, knowledge of growing food um, and just being around plants. Your use as far as being an ag agent, have you noticed an increase in, in demand because of covid or an increase in gardening and interest in it because of COVID. You made mention about people's, you know, the demographics changing because you may be retired or you may be a gardener at home. How do you look at the, uh, is it increasing your workload? Absolutely. We are seeing more people who have an interest. Um, and it's, and that knowledge level is so varied. So we have people that have never gardened in their life, but they want to get their hands in the soil. Um, and so teaching them those basic skills is very different than somebody who's maybe gardened for their whole life or maybe watched their parents garden. Yeah, it's like watching Grandpa who got me interested in on controlling a tomato hornworm. You know how he taught me? He popped it. I thought it was so cool. So he had my, my brother and I running through the tomatoes looking for them and popping them. I mean, well, they were disgustingly green. Anyways, I think I'll leave that alone. Amy, you got, you're also an editor, not an editor, well, I'd call it the gardening editor for a local newspaper, a pretty big newspaper now, too. And today you had something titled, well, when I, in the opening minutes here, it was like they're here. They're here. We did a podcast on insects to prepare for them. And your article basically dabbled a little bit in what we were talking about, but then a little bit more. You made mention of like, be prepared for jumping worms, bagworm. Uh, tent caterpillar, things of this nature. Can you elaborate on what your article was like uh, or about basically today yeah. and how they can get online to basically read that thing? Yeah, so if they just um, log in to ToledoBlade.com 
and they go to the A&E section, Arts and Entertainment, and check out the garden column. So I just do a weekly garden column during the season. And the purpose is to really engage people in horticulture. And so sometimes it's the pest. It's what I call the ugly side. Uh, but then there's, you know, the plant side, the beautiful side. I mean, you can't just, mm-hmm. you know, tell people about the bad side and expect them to to really be well, engaged. Well, well, part of the reason that, you know, we're doing this is to introduce them to the, uh, they don't notice the damage until it's way too late. And so what I've been, and Scott's been trying to do is trying to bring it to people's attention that, you know, before anybody, you know, waits until the Japanese beetle is actually out and has done their damage to try to take care of it, be prepared for it. Now, you made mention of something that I noticed last year for the very first time in the soil. Over there at an urban farm that we've, well, I'll make mention, it was Thomas Jackson. There's little itty-bitty cream-colored worms that are leaping all over the place. Now, you made mention in the article about jumping caterpillars or worms. Were those them? They were not. So okay. these, um, the Asian jumping worms, really look like our regular old earthworms that we have. In and the they soil. leap. But they do, and they kind of flail around. And so uh, we're just, we're kind of anticipating their arrival or watching their for their arrival. Um, I haven't gotten any um, confirmed reports in the general area, but we know that they're here in Ohio and surrounding states. And so, you know, that the purpose of the article was just to raise awareness. So when people are out gardening, if they see something that just looks like an earthworm, just a regular earthworm, but it's different, it, it moves really quickly um, to let people know so we can try to gauge what the uh, population is and then get the word out so we don't want to spread it further. Well, why not? Now, in normal, the standard earthworm basically is benefit. I'm beneficial to lawns, gardens, soils, uh, I mean, for the environment because they aerate the soil and they reincorporate nutrients, which is what they call earthworm castings, where they're selling at like $20 a bag. Um, This isn't like a red wiggler that you can get over there by the bay and, you know, go fishing with? Yeah, so these are a little bit different. They have a huge appetite, which includes um, like leaf litter and, you know, decomposing things, which is good, Uh, but they do it pretty quickly, and so... And they feed at the surface, so they're not going down in the soil that would increase, like, aeration, and that Mm -hmm. is obviously a benefit of earthworms. Yep. Yep. So they're at the top of the soil. They're feeding a lot. They also will feed on the tips of roots, of plant roots, which can be problematic. So it's like a large nematode. Yeah, so they're, um, you know, they're changing the soil dynamics, and so if they get into a forest— you know, if you've ever gone walking in the woods, you're walking on leaves, right, that have fallen— um, they're breaking that down pretty rapidly. And so it's just kind of bare soil. Where'd they come from? Uh, Asia. Hey, go figure. Um, well, okay, Asia's a big area. But, I mean, they came in. How did they get here? I mean, it was kind of like, let's say the gypsy moth came here via the same circumstances. But somebody brought it in for a cheap or inexpensive way of doing silk here in the in the States. Did somebody find it to be a benefit that they would bring these over to see what they would do to help, you know, the so, environment? Yeah, they've been on the West Coast um, in the early 1900s. So they've been around for a long time. Um, probably they just arrived with shipping of plant material. So the pupa or some stage of that, the, the earthworm's life cycle was in that pot with the plants that we were getting. And then they were planted out into the environment and then took hold. Okay, so the, are they hermaphroditic like, the, let's say, the regular earthworms that we're used to here, meaning that... 
it doesn't matter. You can cut them in half, and you've got two that are going to end up, you know, exponentially creating more and more and more and more. Yeah, I mean, I don't know all the the biology about them, but they um, are very reproductive, and so populations grow pretty quickly um, and, again, can be pretty damaging. Do we have a bunch of them out here yet or no? You're just bringing, raising We're awareness. We're just raising awareness at this point. Okay, awareness then. Um, there, One I'll hit at the very end, but right now, awareness. There's this thing that looks like a pine cone that's on arborvitas, evergreens. That, that at one time was just evergreens. Now I see it on Beech trees, primarily tricolor beech. You can find it on uh, um, burning bush. You can find it on almost anything. What's that called? So that's a bagworm. Okay. Um, and it's not the it does not the webbing that we tend to see. Sometimes the names, common names, can be confusing, right? Right. But like you just described, I mean, it's a perfect explanation of what it looks like. It looks like these little cones, and often people go by them thinking, well, they're just an evergreen cone right? until they start to move or their population grows. And then you have a tree that's just all brown with these so-called cones and they don't have any green leaves left. It's too late. Right. Yeah. And at that point it is too late. Have so, you ever seen, I mean, you've seen it, but the, to, to enlighten people, they, like you said, it looks like a regular cone that belongs on the evergreen. But if you go over there and touch it, it's like you're, you're, you're agitating the little critter that's on the inside. If you touch it or squeeze it, It'll stick its little tongue out or the caterpillar will stick its head out and yell at you like, you know, hey, bud, leave me alone. And it goes back in. Mm -hmm. When do they do their feeding? Is it daytime, nighttime? Are there natural predators? That's a compounded question. Yeah, so they've spent the winter, and you probably covered this in your last podcast, in that egg mass stage in the bag. So those eggs are hatching, and those tiny little caterpillars come marching out of that bag where they spent the whole winter, and they start creating their own bag. And as they're doing that, they're feeding, they're creating this bag with the leaves that are there. And then, like you said, they stick their head out, they feed, they go back in. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a unique little scenario, but it can do some really severe damage. And I want to bring awareness now. Be prepared for it. If you're not sure, I mean, ask questions and go on to that. Now, I'm going to repeat it, repetition, repetition, repetition. What was that hotline on the, on the website? On, so on, it's uh, extensions, ask an expert. Extensions, ask an expert. Okay. Mm -hmm. The other thing with the bagworms, I just want to, right now, as they're hatching, they're very small and they're not protected because they haven't created their bag yet. And so if you are going to treat with an insecticide, um, now is the time to do it once you see those little caterpillars out there. See, now we're we're primarily uh, proactive organics, sticking with the most natural process of doing things. But every once in a while, you need an antibiotic to cure a cold before it gets to become pneumonia. Uh, in this case, uh, what are you recommending as far as pesticides? Now, we always recommend reading the label if you're going to do it yourself. However, are there companies that you would recommend doing it, or was there something that they can purchase over the counter that would be for an established tree, for instance? Yeah, so, I mean, they can hire the service done. Um, they just have to make sure that the timing is correct. So they need to get on that right away because you need to schedule that to have somebody actually come out. If they're going to do it themselves, and they can, especially on, you know, shorter shrubs, um, you know, things that they can reach with a a spray, there is an organic insecticide called um, BT, um, or Dipel is another um, name that's out there. It's an organic insecticide that's very effective when the caterpillars are small. But you need to put that away once they get large because it's not going to be effective. BT stands for Bacillus thuringiensis. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Um, they, they, we're going to go from that to another. Now there's another, 
Well, well time out a second. Can okay. I ask? Scott she, wants to interrupt. And you know what? I, well, it's very rare that I get Amy to come here to give us qualified information. Your turn. Thanks for inviting me to the show. The Can, can you do that anytime? I mean, I, I know you said when they're, they're there, it's small and warm, but can you be proactive if you're not really paying attention to when they've shown up before and start spraying? Is there a proactive time? Yeah, so this opens like a whole nother yes. door, but there's something called plant phenology. Have you heard that? No. Or that's growing new to degree me. days? So scientists have looked at, um, they've created what we're calling like this biological calendar. And so they identify first bloom and full bloom of wonderful landscape plants that we have in our landscape that are growing. They also, and it, they bloom based on temperature, right, and weather conditions. Okay, so is this what we just talked just about? yesterday. Thank you, Amy. I'm in love. Yes. yes. You're qualifying and quantifying my explanation yesterday. University of Kentucky has something like degree. What did I call that last show? It was degree. It was basic. You were basing. It was temperature. Based on temperature. Yes. They had a name for it, but University of Listen Kentucky to the podcast. basically has their own version, I believe, of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So this is like light bulbs going off over here. Please continue. I interrupted. Yep. So what they've done then is so they have this list of plant blooms. Then they have a list of plant or insect observations. So maybe it's hatch. Um, maybe it's adult activity. And they've married the two lists together because they're all based on weather conditions. Mm -hmm. And so um, each university, land-grant university, or many land-grant universities have their own kind of growing degree day information. In Ohio, we have a website that you put in your Ohio zip code, and it tells you how many growing degree days uh, we've accumulated since the beginning of the year. So this morning when I checked, I believe we were at 718 units. And it also tells me what's happening in that biological calendar. And so I really like to promote that because, you know, sometimes it's hard to see those little bitty caterpillars that are out there and exactly. you miss it. Yes. But if it's tied to growing degree days and you can watch that calendar and watch that number as we get closer to whatever, you know, insect activity you're looking for, um, then that's your cue to get out there and do some scouting. Okay. It's all based on Mother Nature, not a calendar. Right, right, right. So, okay, I, he wouldn't believe me until the pro comes in. And yeah, I, I always like to kind of compare it. I mean, each one of us has a birthday. It happens the same day every year. Plants and insects don't act that way, right? So the Correct. lilac that's blooming Ooh, could like bloom, that. you know, three weeks different depending on what the weather conditions are. Right, yeah. Wow. I'm impressed. And just I'm, a little plug. So we have the website. Yeah. Um, so Growing Degree Days in Ohio. Just, you know, put that in a Google search and it comes up or your own, you know, university, wherever you're calling or, you know, at. But then we have a phenology garden um, at Toledo Botanical Garden where my office is that it's some of those plants that we track first bloom and full bloom. Well, the last time I was there, it was just the most beautiful rose garden I saw. Where, Where is it? By your office there. The phenology garden is behind the office. Oh, all right. All right. Well, I'm going to get back to more insects again. You, 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 we're going to go into rostral patterns now. Do you remember a gentleman by the name of Dr. Harry Nemchak? He was a entomologist at Ohio State University. Very, very knowledgeable. Um, I'm sure you've heard the story about grubs and moles. Okay, We'll go from moles to the grub and then from the grub to the adult grub. 
what is it that moles feed on? Because he told us to knock out its food source and you'll get rid of the mole. So moles will feed on lots of insects in our soil, not just grubs. But I think what what happened is a while ago when we were making applications to control grubs, um, the insecticide of choice was pretty broad spectrum. And it didn't just kill grubs, but it killed other Everything. things in the soil. Right, right. And so they made the application, the moles went away, not just because the grubs were dead, but there was nothing in the soil for them to eat. What are we talking about, chloridine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has, now, do they still have test plots at Ohio State University that are 25-plus years old of uh, when, when they were sprayed, or did they eliminate that altogether? I'm not sure what the the update is on those plots. I mean, they okay. definitely there's plots there, but I'm not sure if they still have those. Yeah, people were out there buying chloridine, using it to control ants on an annual basis once a year. Oh, it's great stuff. We'll get some more of this. But it knocked everything out. Right. I mean, the beneficials as well as the, the ones that we did not want. Mm-hmm. So science has improved and we have are having, you know, insecticides or different pesticides that are more specific. So they're not as broad spectrum. So, you know, we can apply something that kills grubs but doesn't harm earthworms or other insects in the soil. Well, guess what? Grubs are gone, <laughs> but there's other things for those moles to eat. And so when we talk about mole control, um, I mean, people still remember that and tie those two things together and that's part of my job with that research-based information, unbiased information, is to to get the word out that okay, the products we're using for grub control is not it's it's just not the same. No. And so trapping moles really is if you need to get rid of them, you need to trap them. That's a burgeoning industry that's starting to come back. We discovered that ninety percent plus of their what was inside them was earthworm act earthworms, mm-hmm. and so they were eating those too. The chlorine knocked that out. Mm-hmm. All right, now the grub. Uh, there's different varieties of grubs. You got them from, let's say, the billbug beetle all the way up to the European chafer to a, uh, I think there's a bull. Uh, I can't think of the name of it. In other words, a huge, ugly-looking guy. It's very docile. But the grubs themselves are now starting to rise to the surface. Uh, what is the process that they're going through right now? Are they basically transforming or going through the process of developing into a beetle now? Are they going to eat anything like the lawn's roots right at the moment? Or when is the best time to put down an insecticide for the full season? Yeah, so they spent the winter as grubs. Um, Mm -hmm. So they went down when it was cold. They worked their way back up. Um, You know, some of them have already hatched, like the May-June beetle. Those are the really large beetles that if you leave your porch light on overnight, they come banging at your door and just real big and clunky. It's summer. Yeah. So um, obviously those beetles are going to be mating and laying eggs the next generation but then we've got others, the Asiatic garden beetle, Japanese beetles, um, the chafers. I mean, they're going to be coming out kind of progressively throughout the summer, again, mating, laying eggs, and then the next generation. So we really, just like those um, bagworms that you want to go after the very small caterpillars, um, it's the same thing with most insects. They're most vulnerable at that young stage. And so that's when you really want to, you know, hit that window of... Um, Best management or optimal management. Now, they're going to be, I mean, you said BT or Bacillus thuringiensis. There's a product that's out there that's basically a toxin, natural toxin, to one particular beetle. And it's called the Japanese beetle. This is called milky spore. Now, whenever they use a BT product, I think that's a Bacillus. Well, I know it is. 
it doesn't stop growing. It'll go from yard to yard to yard to yard to yard. Now, this is what I guess you want to call a spillover or some type of benefit. Let's say your neighbors are going to benefit from if you put it down, but it only kills the Japanese beetle. At least that's what I'm of the understanding. Is it going to knock out other beetle grubs? So it typically does not have, um, you know, it will impact the, the health of the other grubs. And it also, we've done some research, and I think as we get warmer, um, I think the, the, the success is probably a little bit greater. And often if you reapply it, and not just meaning reapply it in that same season, but, you know, season after season, right. um, we seem to see better results rather than what I call a one and done. Okay. And so, again, just another benefit of a land grant and the university is to find out what's happening as far as the latest and greatest research. Um, you know, products are there to, to sell, right? And so they're going to tell you the best thing about their products. But now we've got researchers that compare those products and their effectiveness over a season. And so, um, you know, we can call up a Dave Shetler or Dave Gardner and say, hey, what are, what are you seeing on the latest research? And that's, I think, the value of extension. Well, it sounds like it. I mean, it, it definitely. I mean, people like Scott. Now, he's sitting here just, he's, if he had a pen and paper, he'd write everything down. He's absorbing this stuff like a sponge. And he's been very, very curious. He didn't have any idea. See, this, his, his family's business or his wife's family business is a local garden center in northwest Ohio. There's two of them, actually. And I've known him for, what, 30-plus years, and he never paid any attention to what was going on around him as far as the the plants. Oh, yeah, they're very pretty. I want a tropical theme. His wife would bring things home and it'd go from there. Now he is addicted. I mean, there is no 12-step program for this man. It's just one of these things, and he wants to learn too. We're noticing, like Scott, that there are kids out there, generations of people that don't know exactly where a tomato comes from or where a vegetable comes from other than, let's say, a, the produce section of your local grocery store. And the curiosity's coming up, and it's exploding. The children, not their parents, their children are the ones that are showing the interest in watching things grow and being mesmerized. You mean that thing that I got out of the bag came out of the ground? You mean that thing in the ground is eating something that's made out of uh, chicken poop? Yeah, the interest has just been expanding. We had a couple of kids in the store today. Uh, like a 17-year-old and like a 14, 13, 14-year-old brother. Yeah. And the two boys were just like, where's your raspberries? Do you have any grapes? You know, what else do you have fruit-wise? Da-da-da-da-da. And, uh, yeah, they bought some they bought some goodies and some other goodies, and they were like, yeah, this is cool. I mean, I think it's 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 cool watching, you know, in there. You can see them. I mean, it's like a child getting a reward, and they're, they're accomplishing something out of it. Now, Watermelon, I mean, there's so many different things, and that's a cultural thing, too, um, as far as how to process and prepare it. Uh, but when it comes down to insects, there was something else that we didn't hit on. We hit the bag. Oh, tent caterpillar. Now, is that something, like you said earlier, that you have to be prepared for, even though you don't notice it until the damage is done? It's got that webbing all over the place? Well, and that's the other thing with extension, too. I mean, you have to know what... Um, the damage is to the plants. And so there are some insects that are out there that you may encounter in your landscape that you really don't need to do anything about. And so you have to, you know, take a look, um, assess the situation, and are they causing undue harm? Um, I mean, are they going to stress out that plant that it's it's um, going to be then vulnerable to other things? Or 
Hemp caterpillar, can you handle a little infestation? Yeah, mostly you see it on trees ornamentals like crab apples. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're at the top. Now, the webbing that's there is to protect them not from you and I, but from predators such as birds. Mm -hmm. And can it handle it? In other words, yeah, they're going to kill off a couple of the, the, the leaves, but you can always cut that out. What do those caterpillars turn into? Are they moths or are yes. they they're moth? Okay. Mm-hmm. So we had we had for a number of years in a row on the weeping cherry out back that uh, we would get the tents and and all they would do was cut those back and then you know put them put it in a bag so that they you know they yeah. didn't go anywhere else. Let's just say they were one and one done at my house. But we had those for, I want to say, like maybe four, maybe five years in a row. And then pretty soon, nothing. I have not had tent caterpillar at all in years. I think that's what Amy was discussing, too. I mean, this is something well, that I am I am supporting cool. in my Well, no, example. I think that's cool. Now, see, you, you're... And that example is a, it's a native insect, and so it has native biological controls. So occasionally you'll see the pest kind of build, but then the, the predators, the parasitoids kind of catch up and knock it back. Or in your case, you're, you were helping with that a little yeah. bit by, by actual removing, and that's fine. Um, but then we have insects like the gypsy moth, which is a non-native insect. And so the problem with non-native insects... Um, in the beginning, at least, they don't have the parasitoids and the predators. So when they are introduced to a new area, you know, they don't come with their suitcases packed with all their, you know, other insects this that is are, the are going to keep for them. Right. And so populations can grow and expand and get and, and be problematic. And so at that point, we've got to decide, are those populations levels so high that it's ultimately going to um, impact the overall health of the tree? And so when we have gypsy moth populations, at least in northwest Ohio, we've got to take a look and assess the site to see, okay, are the numbers just low and we need to learn to live with that? Or are we going to have an explosion and then it's oak trees around are going to be defoliated, susceptible to other things, and then go into decline and, and, and potentially death sometimes. Well, that's another thing. You're using BT to control that. Uh, is the state doing that or is it basically, you know, the county so in Ohio, we are very lucky to have the Ohio Department of Agriculture coordinate gypsy moth efforts. And so when we have outbreaks, we partner with them um, and apply to the state or the Department of Agriculture. Um, and at a cost share, you know, mm-hmm. 50-50, they'll come out and make an aerial application with an organic insecticide um, at the treetops where these caterpillars are feeding um, and that's why it's so effective. Um, this year, good news, we didn't have any of those treatments. We didn't need to have any of the treatments because our populations are in, un, in manageable levels. How about the emerald ash borer? Now, I'm not noticing as much of a concern right now. Did they just go right on through, do what the damage there is, and then they're done? So they've moved through. Um, you know, populations are in 35 states right now. So, I mean, Ohio is kind of like in the rearview mirror. Although I have some ash at my house that were part of a research project. And, um, you know, many of them died. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them we kept alive. Um, I've stopped treating, but I've noticed that populations are just starting to creep back up. So, I mean, there are beetles in the area. It's just not that 
wave and that massive number of Beatles that we saw in the, you know, 2005 through 2010. Well, like the Gypsy Moth, which was brought in by, I'll call it an entrepreneur. These weren't brought in by entrepreneurs. These were brought in by ships from the Upper Peninsula area of Michigan. Or is this, am I wrong? And they just traveling down from Michigan and they decide once they hit the mainland, they're going to go east and west. Yeah, so they were, they're a wood bore. So they came in on uh, pallets or dunnage from ships. So similar to Asian longhorn beetles. So those wood bores are moved with commerce, but they're that material that holds the commerce that we want. And that's one of the reasons why you don't want to go intrastate or interstate uh, transportation or transporting of firewood. I mean, if you're going to do any camping, you take your firewood from the state you're camping and you don't bring it across the border. Correct. Okay. Now, are there fines and penalties of somebody? I mean, do they actually have people that are there looking at, you know, let's say somebody's got a trailer with camping goods and there's wood there that they will pull you over? Yeah, so a lot of people learned about or were exposed to this whole movement of firewood with Emerald Ash Borer. Mm-hmm. Um, and just recently, um, USDA has um, kind of rescinded or stopped their uh, requirements because they just, with 35 states, I mean, it was difficult to True. be able to, um, you know, pay for that. And so now it kind of goes back on each individual state for what their quarantine is for that movement. One, it's just a good idea to buy firewood where you're going to be burning it. So if you're traveling, don't haul it with you. Just buy it where you arrive, burn it, and then, you know, don't bring it back. Um, But like in Ohio, we have other quarantines that you've got to be aware of. So we've got the Asian longhorn beetle quarantine that's really in southern Ohio. Um, We have the... um, Spotted lanternfly quarantine now that's in Jefferson County. But that's a pretty moth, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's beautiful. Be- but what does it do? Now, please, it's a, it's got red, it's white, it's got spots on it. It's just one of these pretty things that, you know, but you've been saying, people, pay attention. This is going to devastate everything in the world that's nearby you. If you know what you like, take care of it or look for it so that, what, Ohio State, Michigan State, Wisconsin State, they can all go ahead and be prepared on finding out how it's spreading. Or and how you can control it? Yeah, this is definitely a hitchhiker, like many of our invasives are. And so um, it will hitchhike on plant material, um, even just kind of any kind of commerce. So there was a shipment of um, building supplies from Pennsylvania, which where that's where we know spotted lanternfly is. Um, there were some adults that got in the the packing material, made it to Lorraine County. The truck driver, when he got out, noticed that, oh, my gosh, there's one, which was good, um, and they were able to, you know, control that and eliminate that one. Um, But they are also noticing that um, these are hitchhiking on airplanes. Um, And so our Japanese beetle folks in the West Coast um, are alert, and they've actually found some. Now, obviously, it's a pretty long flight from you know, the East Coast to the West Coast, and often they're not living by the time they make it to California or out on the West Coast. But I'm, you know, super impressed with the people that are working for USDA that, I mean, their focus is Japanese beetles to try to keep Japanese beetles out. But they're aware of other non-native pests and trying to intercept those as well. Is there anything that you want to bring to anybody's attention for this time of year? Per whether it's the uh, the article that you had in today's Blade newspaper or uh, what you'd like to bring awareness to. 
You know, I just want to encourage people, you know, gardening is something that you just continue to learn every year or every day. I mean, I, I tell myself when I go into the office, I want to learn something new every day. And so um, one example is that I had a, a call from a homeowner who was just walking in her neighborhood and noticed the red maples had a spot on them and they started to drop. And could I come out and take a look? You talking the red spot? Nope, not a red spot. Okay. This one is a black spot. Okay. And so, you know, right away, I'm like, you know, my diagnostic brain is going off and thinking, okay, it's <laughs> spring, it's a maple, it's dropping leaves, it's probably anthracnose. Yeah. Um, but I challenge myself, and I should challenge gardeners, that don't just assume with things that you're familiar with. Because you've always, there always could be something else. And so I had gone out, I took a photo, and even with that photo, I thought, yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's anthracnose. And went back, did some research, because I wanted to send her a fact sheet that then they could distribute through the housing development. Um, and anthracnose isn't a big deal. It's a leaf disease. Um, it's a pathogen, causes some leaf drop, but it's not going to impact the overall health. It's more aesthetically displeasing. But as I was reading on anthracnose and trying to get some information for her, there was a site at Michigan State University oh, that said, of hey, the other problem that we're seeing with maples right now in Michigan is this maple leaf blister. I thought, gosh, I've not heard of the maple leaf blister. So I started reading and I looked at the photo of that was on their fact sheet and the leaf that I had right there. And I thought, it's a match. It's a match. Hmm. I've been calling this anthracnose, spot anthracnose. So I, we have a, a weekly conference call with some of my cohorts. Um, so, you know, we spend Tuesday mornings talking about what we're seeing across the state. And I said, hey, I got the situation, showed them a photo, and they're like, oh, yeah, that, that's spot anthracnose. And I'm like, do you think so? Because I don't think so. Ooh. And so I sent up, I showed, up the, I showed up the photo, and they're like, oh, man, I, I think you're right. And so the only way, though, that we can really confirm that is to send it to a lab for confirmation. And so we sent it down to our plant and pest diagnostic lab um, with Ohio State University. And guess what? It came back, maple leaf blister. And so wow. it's not that we have a new disease because I'm sure it's been there for a long time. It, we were just misdiagnosing it. But, you know, not I can learn not something new. Not only did she learn something new that well, day, she taught it, too. Well, that, that's the cool thing about it. She is openly saying, look, I was wrong, but I did more research and found out. So, I, I mean, it's way too early for tar spot. Right. I mean, way too early. But how many times is, is this only in the spring that you're going to notice it? Or are we confusing tar spot on maple with the same disease? Um, so this is an early spring disease. So it Strictly overwintered on the leaves and then in the buds. Okay. So, I mean, if... You don't like leaf drop, and that is, you know, it's maybe by your front door, and you don't like those black spots. I mean, there's a um, a fungicide that you can apply to try to protect your trees. Do we recommend it? Not usually, because plants are going to live without that treatment. Right. But there may be a, a, a time or a day or a situation where somebody wants to, you know, apply that fungicide to protect their trees. But you're right, the tar spot we see um, a little bit later in the season. Right. Um, the thing with the pathogens, though, infections occur way before we see the damage. The, yeah. And so, 
you know, when people bring in that black leaf with the flower or the the spots on it, and what can I do? Well, a you late. you can't do anything, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you opt to do something, that's going to be a next spring application, and again, you've got to be prepared for that. Um, but again, it, it's it's not a big deal. It looks bad. Um, it can look really bad. Um, and when you see leaf drop, you know, people kind of panic. But um, you know, a lot of those leaves. Leaf funguses are, are not a big deal. You know, there's a billion things that I want to ask. Anything from, let's say, scab on crab apples to nuts edge on, in lawns to you name it. Uh, we just don't have the time. And Amy's got a family to go to. I was just wondering if by any chance uh, you wanted to say anything in closing. And once that closing is done, uh, what I would like to do is find out also if we would be able to have the opportunity or benefit of having you on board again. Oh, absolutely. And I just really want to challenge people to get out in their garden and look what's going on. Um, You know, I've had quite a few people get out there. They find an insect and they, you know, are in panic mode and come to find out it's a beneficial insect. And so, you know, we all have to learn, right? And so just keep on learning. Last question. Spiders (laughs) are good, aren't they? So spiders can be good. They have their place, yeah, for sure. Well, definitely not in somebody's bedroom, but I mean, you know, they're, (laughs) they're, okay, cool. Thank you, Amy. Well, Scott, you have any other questions? No, this is awesome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. God bless you. This was wonderful. Yeah, and having her on board right now is like an encyclopedia without, you know, the books. In other words, this is better than the internet. And we can use her as an example and say, hey, we got Amy on our side. Thank you, Amy. You just did. Appreciate it. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for listening to your Midwest Garden. If you like today's conversation, please share this podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to click on the subscribe button so you won't miss any future episodes. Plus, if you have any show topics you'd like us to discuss, head on over to our sponsor's Facebook page, which is Black Diamond Garden Center, and message them your topic idea. For all of us at your Midwest Garden Podcast, I'm Michael Rourke, the Garden Guy. Hope you enjoyed today's conversation.